Hello, and welcome to Never Not True Crime. I'm your host, Sydney Benjamin. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Never Not True Crime. You may think you're in the wrong place, but I guarantee you are in the right place. This is Never Not Having Fun, but today's episode is brought to you by Never Not True Crime. So as most of you know, I am obsessed with true crime and I would love to have a true crime podcast, but I don't think I have time for that. So I'm just going to stick to doing a couple episodes here and there of true crime podcasts. And today's episode is one that I've, it's a case that I've known about since I was a kid. I used to watch true crime specials with my parents and this is one of those cases that was covered and it stuck with me because it happened five months after I was born. In 2015, I was visiting my college roommate's house, and we passed a giant billboard in her town with a college student's face on it, and I asked her about it. As she began telling me the story, I realized that it was one that I already knew. As we drove towards her house, she pointed out a blue house on the left side of the road on Branch Street, the house where the prime suspect's parents lived, just under a mile away from my friend's house. For almost 25 years, residents of Arroyo Grande believed this house is where the college freshman's body had been hidden. The billboard we passed was a faded picture of a 19-year-old college freshman at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Her name? Kristen Smart. Kristen Denise Smart was born on February 20th, 1977 in Germany. Her parents, Stan and Denise Smart, were both military teachers to military children in Germany. They moved to Stockton where she grew up with two younger siblings. She was outgoing, adventurous, kind, and loving. She was a lifeguard and she worked at a summer camp in Hawaii. She loved the ocean. She was tall, over six feet tall, and had blonde hair. Kristen was really close to their family, um, and this was a time before cell phones, so she wrote a lot of letters back and forth with her parents, and they had a standing phone call every Sunday night. The story of her disappearance begins Friday, May 24th, 1996. It was Memorial Day weekend, and she made an unscheduled call to her parents, but she left a message that she had exciting news, and she would call them on Sunday to fill them in. Her parents never got that call, but they did later find out that she was going to tell them that her professor had found a misplaced test. The night of the 24th, Kristen was headed to a party with her friend Margarita Campos. The original party that the two were going to attend was not the kind of party that Kristen was looking for. She was 19, it was Friday, and she wanted to blow off some steam. She just finished some finals, and it was time to party. They drove around with a friend through town, and eventually they were dropped off in a neighborhood um, close to campus to keep looking for a party. After a little bit of walking, Margarita decided that she wanted to go home, but Kristen wanted to stay out and look for a party. Margarita ended up walking back to campus, but gave Kristen her room key so that she could return back to the dorms. That key was never found. Margarita later admitted that she knew that she shouldn't leave Kristen alone. She was a Girl Scout, but Kristen wasn't going to stop until she found the party she wanted, and Margarita was exhausted. Kristen did end up finding a party. That party was at Swampy's house, and Swampy was an affectionate nickname, if you can call it that, for Ryan Fell. It was at 135 Crandall Way. That was a frat house. It's important to know that it was a frat house because frats are typically closed-lipped when it comes to investigations. They don't want to risk losing their charter if any violations are found. There was a lot of alcohol at this party, and not everyone was 21, including Kristen. She was only 19. She drank a lot. A lot. People saw her at the party falling over, heavily intoxicated and unable to stand on her own. She was in no way able to walk back to her dorm by herself. Around 2 a.m., the party was ending and people were leaving. Kristen was seen passed out on the lawn of the house next door, and Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis helped her up to her feet, and they started walking her towards her dorm. 
Kristen was unable to walk on her own. They had to hold her up between the two of them. They headed towards campus, and that's when Paul Flores caught up with them. It wasn't a coincidence that Paul was there. He was actually seen at the party earlier that night with Kristen. From the party to the dorm, it was just about a half mile. Tim was the first to peel off from the group to go to his car, and then Cheryl was second to leave because her dorm was off in a different direction. Paul leaves Kristen in the pathway between Santa Lucia Hall, his dorm, and Mirror Hall, Kristen's dorm. Paul says that he watched Kristen walk into the dorm, but there is no evidence that she ever made it back to her dorm. And that's the story. At least, that's the story that Paul told. And there hasn't been any witness that we know of that's come forward to corroborate his story. A big question is, who is this Paul Flores? Who's this last guy that saw Kristen alive? Well, at the time of her disappearance, Paul was a 20-year-old Cal Poly freshman. He lived in Santa Lucia Hall, room 128. He was an awful student, like truly terrible. He finished his freshman year with a .6 GPA. I genuinely feel like you have to try to get that low. I don't I don't see how it's possible to fail every single class and still remain a student there. He was described in high school as creepy Paul or psycho Paul. People did not want to be around him. He was not someone you want to be around when you're drunk or when he's drunk, and you definitely wouldn't leave your friends alone with him. He had questionable interactions with women in the past. He also had a violent past. In grade school, he beat up another kid to the point where the other child had to go to the hospital after receiving a very serious concussion. The Flores family were advised to get Paul help. They refused, and they did end up having to pay for the child's medical bills. So it is known that that Paul was violent, and his parents did nothing about it. They defended him. Since Kristen's disappearance, Paul has received multiple DUI charges. He went to jail for eight months, um because he drank on probation after receiving one of those DUI charges. He also got a charge for having a firearm as a felon. So yeah, he hasn't stayed out of trouble. He's also currently facing investigation for multiple rapes in the greater LA area. So yeah, Paul is not a good dude by any stretch of the imagination. An ex-girlfriend of his said that she had no idea who he was until she Googled him after their breakup. But once she found out about the accusation that he was involved with Kristen's disappearance, she said it made perfect sense. That's real scary. I think that should be taken very seriously. So back to the investigation. Where did this all go wrong? What happened? Kristen was last seen just after 2 a.m. on Saturday, May 25th. But her disappearance wasn't reported until three days later on May 28th. Her doormates and roommates realized that no one had seen her at all on the 25th and no one could find her on the 26th. And then on the 27th, they started to realize school was the next day and Kristen still isn't here. So they started getting worried. All of her stuff was all over her bed, like she obviously had not returned from the party on the 24th. Her doormates ended up contacting the campus police on May 27th after not being able to reach Kristen. Now, again, there were no cell phones, so she didn't have a cell phone, but they couldn't find her anywhere on campus, and they hadn't heard from her or her parents. The campus police didn't believe that she was missing, all right? They just felt like she had gone on a Memorial Day trip and didn't tell anyone, so they didn't take it seriously. Well, her doormates wouldn't let it go, so they ended up contacting police who said they had to go through the campus police. So the doormates once again called the campus police, and the campus police once again said she was just on vacation. The campus police did end up calling Kristen's mom to verify her whereabouts on the 27th, where Denise, her mom, told them that she hadn't heard from her daughter since the 24th. One thing to know about the campus police is they flat out lied about something that they said Denise Smart said. She never said this. She adamantly denies this. They said 
that Denise told them that Kristen went camping. No, she didn't. Kristen did not go camping, and Denise never said that. Campus police genuinely severely screwed this up. They missed opportunities to interview witnesses, collect evidence, and even just search for Kristen. Nobody started searching for her until several days after she had gone missing. Everyone knows that the first 48 hours are pivotal to getting a case solved. They waited three days to even take a serious report. Once Stan and Denise finally found out that their daughter was missing, they immediately drove from Stockton to Slow to try and find Kristen. Once in Slow, they attempted to file a missing persons report, but the Slow County Police Department said that she hadn't been missing long enough. What? Kristen had already been missing for over 72 hours. That makes absolutely no sense. No one had seen her since Saturday early morning at 2 a.m. I don't even think you should have to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. Because, again, this is a college campus and evidence is going to be ruined and missed because of passing time. There are so many people on this campus that are moving about. You have to get that evidence early on. The missing person report wasn't filed until weeks after she went missing. Weeks that's unacceptable in my opinion. They did, however, begin the investigation on, the, on May 30th. The campus police pulled in the last three people to have seen Kristen live, Paul, Tim, and Cheryl. Cheryl and Tim cooperated with investigation and gave their accounts of the night, but they both left Kristen. They didn't see what happened once Paul was left alone with her. Kristen was so intoxicated that she couldn't stand up, and yet they left her alone with a guy that they knew had a reputation of taking advantage of girls. Chris Lambert in his podcast, Your Own Backyard, episode two, goes heavily into the interactions Paul had with Kristen and other girls at the party. He talks about how Paul tried to force Cheryl to kiss him before she made it safely into her dorm room that night. Paul early on was looked at as a possible suspect and the only suspect of this case because he admitted that he was the last person to see her. Because so much time had passed between her disappearance and the investigation, a lot of evidence was not collected. Witnesses were not interviewed. And if they were interviewed, it wasn't until weeks, months, or even years later. That's incomprehensible. One thing that was a super lucky break for the investigators was that Paul was actually booked into county jail on May 27th for an old DUI that he had failed to show up to court for. He was photographed for his mugshot with a black eye and scratches. How did he get those? Well, it depends on who you talk to and when. Because the story changes. In Paul's own words, he told investigators that he lied to them. He first told people that he got it from a basketball game, but people at the basketball game said he already had the black eye. And then he told investigators that he was removing a car radio and hit himself in the eye, and that's how he got the black eye. And then he told friends that it was a complete mystery, that he just woke up with it. In my opinion, they were defensive wounds from when he was committing a crime. I mean, how else do you explain a black eye and a missing girl? Put two and two together, investigators. Come on. Kristen's dorm was searched seven days after she went missing, and Paul's room wasn't searched until 16 days after she went missing. Over two weeks went by without searching his dorm. The semester was over. He had moved all of his stuff out, and a cleaning crew had come through and cleaned the dorm. There was no trace that Paul had even lived there. And then on June 19th, Paul was interviewed about Kristen. Investigators asked about the black eye in connection with Kristen, but they didn't really get a straight answer again. And then, very quickly, Paul asked to leave to clean up concrete at his mom's. Concrete? <laughs> That's suspicious. That's weird. Why Why did she... Why was there concrete to clean up? That doesn't make sense. Two weeks after this girl's missing and all of a sudden there's concrete being poured in his backyard? That's suspicious. 
investigators later found out that the concrete that he was cleaning up, it was because Susan Flores had a six foot flower bed poured out of concrete in her backyard just weeks after Kristen went missing, but they never searched it. The flower bed was three feet deep and yet it only held six inches of soil because there was a second layer of concrete. That's not normal. That is not normal, but it wasn't searched. A few days later on June 29th, alert dogs were brought into Paul's old dorm room and they alerted to the scent of human decomposition on Paul's mattress, on his telephone, and in a wastebasket. Why would there be scent of human decomposition in a dorm room? There is no explanation for that. You can't explain that away. Paul also doesn't have an alibi. Well, he does, but there are 16 hours missing. He claims he was asleep. He claims he's just stayed in his dorm room all day. He claims that he took a shower. But you can't believe a word out of this kid's mouth because there's nobody to back this up and his story keeps changing. His story keeps changing. You can't trust him. Early on in this investigation, an investigator made a massive mistake in a public press hearing. They stated that the only suspect is Paul and if Paul doesn't talk, they won't have enough evidence to convict him. They just told this kid that if he doesn't say anything, he's going to literally get away with murder. So that's what he does. He refuses to talk. He pleads the fifth to every question. He refuses to talk to investigators. He won't talk to the press or the Smart family. He won't speak to anyone. He hides away in his house. The Flores family has not been cooperative in the search for Kristen whatsoever. They have done everything humanly possible to keep police out of their property. Paul moved to San Pedro, California in late 1996, but Ruben and Susan Flores stayed living in their respective houses they lived in at the time of her disappearance. Why? People know who they are. People that live around them, where they live in Aurora Grande, it's not a big place, all right? It is a small town. People know who they are and they know what their son is accused of. Why would they stay living in those houses? It doesn't make sense. Well, it does if you're trying to cover up what your son did and you don't want anyone to have access to your house. That's why you stay living there. In 1996, the Smart family raised funds to put up a billboard just down the street from Susan Flores' house as a constant reminder to the family that Kristen will not be forgotten and they will not rest until they get justice. In October of 1996, Susan Flores briefly rented out her house to the Lassiters. And the Lassiters quickly started receiving anonymous letters urging them to confess to what their son did. Well, the Lassiters had a six-year-old, so it obviously wasn't meant for them. This couple later found out the letters were meant for the Floreses. The Lassiters cooperated as much as they could with police. They brought up several peculiarities that happened over the time of them renting this house. First, there was a garbage can that Ruben Flores warned them not to use. And right after they moved in, Ruben came to pick up the trash can. It was just a trash can. I don't understand the big deal. And neither did they. But after that trash can was moved, an earring was found in a crack near where the trash was. The earring had a red mark on the back of it. It was silver in color with turquoise in the middle, and it matched the necklace that Kristen was wearing in a photo. The Lassiters handed it over to the police, but it was, quote unquote, misplaced. How do you misplace an earring? Like genuinely, that is such a big piece of this puzzle that you will, that they will never get back. That, I, that earring could have been case breaking. I don't understand how you lose that earring. And the Lassiters and the Smarts don't understand that either. And why was there a woman's earring matching that of one that Kristen may have owned? And why was there a red blood-colored fingerprint on the back of it? How do you misplace that? I will never, ever understand that. But 
it was lost and there was nothing they can do about it. In November of 19... In November of 1996, six months after Kristen disappeared, the Smarts filed a $40 million civil suit against Paul Flores. Now, this wasn't to get money. It wasn't. It was a wrongful death suit, and it was an attempt to get Paul Flores disqualified from the Navy because they felt like he was probably going to try and flee the country. With this lawsuit being filed, the Smarts lawyer was able to depose Paul Flores. And in this deposition, he pleaded the fifth to every single question asked by the smart attorney even questions that had nothing to do with Kristen like questions about his his job where he worked his relationships they had nothing to do with Kristen and he pleaded the fifth to every single one the the lawyer also was able to depose other people so he tried to depose Tim and Cheryl the two last people who saw Kristen with Paul Cheryl doesn't recount anything new and Tim refused to show up he wouldn't cooperate after this lawsuit, the investigation goes quiet for a little bit. Well, from what we're told, obviously there may be things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. There's no probable cause that we know of for searches of properties and there are no new leads that come out. There's no new witnesses. There's no new evidence. Shortly after this lawsuit, the Lassiters, the ones who live in Susan's house, are evicted as a result of helping with the investigation. But just before they're evicted, they're approached by the Smarts lawyer for approval to search the property, the house, and the backyard. This is the first time the property has been thoroughly searched ever. Now, the Lassiters were afraid of, of legal troubles, so they only could do what was legally allowed. So they couldn't dig up the backyard or anything like that. But they did everything that they could do as renters and allowed investigators to come in and search the backyard and the house cadaver dogs were brought in and they alerted to the corner of the yard where the trash can that reuben had picked up used to be there was also anomalies that were found under the ground in the backyard but nothing concrete enough to warrant a dig of the yard it's also important to know that the equipment from 1997 is not nearly what it is now so it wasn't really good enough to detect anything really and the lassiters had to move out in april of 1997 and then Susan Flores moved back in and hasn't left. So they couldn't do much then, but they did all they could. The next significant date in the Kristen Smart investigation doesn't come until June 2000. FBI agents searched the backyard of Susan Flores and they used ground penetrating radar, but they could only search certain parts of the land because there was a newly constructed garage coincidentally placed right over where the concrete was and multiple flower beds. They did search the house and the garage and the yard, but they didn't dig up the concrete. Why? The warrant hasn't been released, so we don't really know for sure if they had the right to. But in the Your Own Backyard podcast, episode four, Chris Lambert digs up information from Dennis Mann, who don't worry, I will discuss in a little bit. Dennis Mann contacted the guy who wrote the affidavit that got the search warrant. And that man says that they had the right to dig up the yard. So why didn't they? money. That's right. The agents didn't want to incur the expense if they didn't find Kristen. They were too worried about the bottom line. I, I can't understand that. You're so worried about money when there's a missing girl who's been missing for years. I, I, I don't understand that. So who is this Dennis Mann? Well, Dennis Mann was just a passionate guy who wouldn't let up. He really had no connection to the case or Kristen or the Floreses at all, but that didn't stop him. In 2001, he traveled across country to be a pest to the Floreses. In 2001, he traveled across the country to become a pest to the Floreses, and he did just that. 
He built a website called Son of Susan and later developed a website called Dig Up the Yard. I wonder what that was about. Um, if you guessed digging up Susan Flores's yard, you would be correct. He sat in front of Susan's house taking pictures every day. He worked at a pizza shop to make money so he could pay his rent and then sat in front of Susan's house. He would deliver pizza to Cal Poly and ask students about it, even though this was years after the disappearance. He would not let up. He drove down to Southern California where Paul lived and handed out pamphlets to Paul's neighbors about who Paul was and what his involvement is with the case. He tried to talk to Paul, Reuben, and Susan on multiple occasions. He even ended up with a restraining order against him. He, he, he even ended up serving time in jail for breaking that restraining order although he says that it was an accident I'm here for it all right like in my opinion these people they know something they have to know something they are being so secretive and shady why should they get to forget about it while the smarts have to live in misery because of what their son is suspected of doing they shouldn't they shouldn't get to see peace they shouldn't all right they shouldn't be able to forget about it and that's why Dennis Mann did what he did because he didn't want to let them forget about it in 2002, the investigation turned from being a missing person investigation to a murder investigation as Kristen was pronounced dead. Just a couple years later in 2005, Susan Flores and Mike McConnell, Susan's boyfriend, how she has a boyfriend, I don't know, but they end up suing the Smart family over Dennis Mann. <laughs> as if the Smarts had anything to do with Dennis Mann coming over. He genuinely just drove across country because he cared. He cared about Kristen and he cared about getting this family justice. The lawsuit kind of ends up backfiring on the Floreses because it opens them up to further examination and, and gives probable cause for them to search the house again. Now, I'm not saying I'm proud of Dennis Mann for doing that. Like, obviously, he was low-key kind of harassing these people. But, but hey, okay, he got the investigation going again, all right? He did that, and that's exactly what he set out to do. So, Dennis Mann, give yourself a pat on the back, okay? You, you did what you set out to do. And on March 31st, 2007, there was another search of the backyard with ground-penetrating radar. This time, the radar was better. Seven years after the last search, the radar had drastically improved. There are abnormalities found, but they're still not able to search certain sections of the backyard. In May of that year, they did end up digging up some of the concrete, but no remains were found. It's 11 years after Kristen disappeared. Of course they didn't find remains. They had 11 years to rehide her body. They also weren't able to dig up certain parts of the backyard. And you might ask yourself, what parts were those? Well, coincidentally, it was the six foot flower bed. You know, the one that only had six inches of dirt that they built right after the disappearance of Kristen. Yeah, suspicious, right? I just don't understand how they couldn't. I, 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 I don't understand how they weren't able to dig that up, but they weren't. In 2011, Ian Parkinson was elected as the new sheriff and took over Kristen Smart's case. He resolved that he was going to get this case solved, but he's the third sheriff in charge of this case. The incompetence of past sheriffs, investigators, campus police, and detectives involved have led this case to be unsolved. The case saw way too many change of hands. In 1998, a law was passed because of this case to force university police to involve local police at the beginning of an investigation to make sure that this doesn't happen again. The sheriffs in charge of this case have been riddled with incompetence and controversy and illegal activity. And Parkinson, well, he was the new hope for this case. 
After Parkinson took over, nothing really happened in his first term. There were new, there was no groundbreaking discovery that happened. There were no new witnesses or anything like that. But then in 2016, something changed. After going over all of the case files again, they found probable cause to excavate the hillside of Cal Poly. No information has ever been released on the findings of that, but I'm assuming they found something. Now in 2019, something kind of big happened and it had nothing to do with the sheriff's department. A little podcast called Your Own Backyard. And by a little podcast, I mean it's not little at all. There have been millions of downloads of this podcast. This podcast discovered new evidence and new witnesses and brought information to the masses. This podcast was a deep dive into the case. He went through everything. He interviewed everyone and he found so much information. Now, after this podcast came out, there had to have been something major that happened because there was a warrant served to monitor Paul Flores' phone. And in February of 2020, four search warrants were served simultaneously at Paul, Ruben, Susan, and Paul's sister houses. They seized computers and phones and specific items that were not disclosed, but I'm assuming they were juicy because in April 2020, based on the information from the previous search, they were able to get another search warrant for Ruben Flores' home. And there they found additional evidence. And then in March 2021, just last month, another search was done at Ruben Flores' home. This time there were cadaver dogs. There was ground penetrating radar. They took off lattice that was on, on the side of the house. They dug under the house and more significant evidence was found. And then on April 13th, 2021, 24 years, 10 months, and 19 days after Kristen's disappearance, Paul and Ruben Flores were arrested. Oh, did you just get chills? Because I did. Paul was charged with first degree murder and Ruben was charged with accessory for allegedly hiding Kristen's body. On April 19th, both pled not guilty. Paul is being held without bail as he is seen as a danger to society because he is still facing multiple accusations of rape in the Los Angeles area. On April 21st, Ruben Flores was released on $50,000 bail. He has to wear an ankle monitor and cannot leave the Arroyo Grande area. After their arrest on the 13th, investigators had another search warrant for Ruben's house. This time, the ground was dug up. Concrete was removed from the garage and a heavy search was done of the property. After all of these years, they finally were doing the deep searches that should have been done years ago. Just a few days ago, Chris Lampert, the host of Your Own Backyard podcast, went on a radio show and he discussed some things that he found in this case. Now, it's interesting to know that he, while he has this amazing podcast, he is still protecting the case. He hasn't He hasn't disclosed all the information that he's found, all right? One thing that he did say is that he believes Kristen was buried under Ruben's house, but was moved prior to March 2021 search of his property. Chris has a lot of ties to Ruben's neighbors, so it honestly kind of makes sense that if her body was moved, that they would know about it and that they would tell Chris. And a release was made by the prosecutor that I'm not sure was actually supposed to be made public, but it was. And they released information that says that they found evidence of this. They found evidence that Kristen's body was there and was moved. On April 22nd, the Smart family filed a second civil suit. This time it was against Ruben Flores for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Again, this is not an attempt to get money, all right? It's an attempt for discovery. When lawsuits are filed alongside criminal cases, they allow for further discoveries and further investigations to be done against the Flores family. And that's where we are. 
after almost 25 years, there's finally progress being made. There's finally a, a, a hope for justice for Kristen Smart. Now, I don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to tell you what I believe happened. I'm just going to give you the most accepted theory of of what happened. And this theory was in fewer words expressed by the prosecutor that's building the case against Paul Flores. So here it is. Here's what people believe. On May 25th, 1996, around 2 a.m., after Cheryl left Kristen and Paul, Paul attempted or succeeded in, in raping a very intoxicated Kristen. She fought back. In that fight, Paul Flores received a black eye and scratches, and his anger led him to murder Kristen. Paul then called his father, who picked up Paul with Kristen's body and buried her in Susan Flores' backyard. They then later moved Kristen to 710 Whitecourt, Ruben's home. And then later in 2021, Ruben, alongside Susan and Susan's boyfriend, moved her remains to the Huasna area. Now, I don't live up there. I don't know exactly what area is, but I do know that it's a somewhat rural rural a somewhat rural area. Sorry, I can't say the word rural. Now, I have to be honest with you. There's a lot more to this case that I don't know about that nobody knows about that I do hope comes out soon. There is so much to this case that I don't understand. I'm just going to say this right now. If a friend or family member ever came to me and tells me that they murdered someone and they need my help hiding the body, I will straight up tell them that they're going to need to wait right where they are and I'm going to go get an adult, aka a police officer, all right? Because I'm not, I'm not helping them hide the body, all right? I would, I'm not going to do it. Like, does that make me a snitch? Yes, it does. I don't care. I'm not going to survive jail and I'm not rich enough to afford a defense attorney. Like, those people are expensive, which is another thing that I don't understand. Paul's lawyer. Paul's lawyer is the same lawyer that defended Michael Jackson and got a not guilty charge in the child molestation case. Robert Sanger, he's a big time lawyer, all right? And big time lawyers are expensive. Where is all of this money coming from? How much are Reuben and Susan Paul's parents paying? How much is Paul paying? Where did he get this money from? Where did they get this money from? These are questions that I need answers to and I don't know if I'm ever gonna get them. But this case is not over. And over the next months and years, we will be finding out so much more about Paul, his family, their involvement with Kristen's disappearance. And I cannot wait until Kristen's family finally gets the justice they deserve. Again, if you haven't listened to Your Own Backyard, go listen to it. It's phenomenal. Chris said he's going to be following this through to the end, so he will definitely be putting out more episodes. And I honestly cannot wait till he can spill all the beans about what he knows that he hasn't been able to tell us. I respect Chris so much. One thing that I majorly respect is he has not monetized his podcast. His podcast has no commercials. It's completely free. And he has no plans on monetizing it because he is here to seek justice for Kristen. And in that seeking of justice, he can't share everything that he knows. He has taken every piece of information that he has received from witnesses and evidence and taken it straight to the straight to the investigators. All right. He he hasn't released information, even though it would it would make his podcast even better. He hasn't released that information because he wants there to be justice for Kristen. And that's all that we can hope for. Now, I will tell you that there are a lot of details that I left out of this. There are a lot of details that I could not fit in this and and there are a lot of details that aren't known. But if you go listen to your own backyard, you are going to learn so much more about this case. I cannot recommend this podcast highly enough. 
Thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information about where I got my sources from and everything like that, it is going to be in the show notes. I, I read a lot of articles and I listened to a lot of podcasts and I hope I did this case justice. If you have questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at NNHF underscore podcast. I am happy to talk about this case. I'm happy to talk about other cases. Um, I will be doing more true crime podcasts in the future. They do take a lot more work, so they are going to be few and far between. But thank you all so much for listening. Remember, keep never not commit, keep not committing murder. I don't know where to go with that. There's nowhere to go with that. Anyways, thank you so much. And again, reach out to me if you need me. And I will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.